teacher. I, from the time first grade through, I guess, seventh grade, it was an all black environment. I met my first white person when I was 13 years old. So I had all black teachers. And so I jokingly say, I thought George Washington Carver was the first president of the United States. So they'd say, who was the first president of the United States? I'm like, ooh, 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 I know, I know, I know. Yeah. I'm like, George Washington Carver, he did president and he did the peanut. I'm screaming. <laughs> and they're like, uh, no, sir, that is not right. That is exactly not right. But you know, it's so interesting, I think, having hit all black teachers mm -hmm. in an all black environment, my self image of myself as a black man and a black kid in the world was so solid and infallible that my first white friend was a gentleman by the name of Mike Davis, we're friends to this day. And he said to me, he says, uh, my mother said that white people were smarter than black people. And I candidly I laughed so hard, you know, when Snoopy laughs and he puts his head back. <laughs> yeah, that's how I laughed because I was raised that black people were so much smarter than white people because we had to be. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather was a tobacco farmer. He said, when you walk into any building in this country, walk with your head held high because nine cases out of 10, you someone you knew or someone you related to built that building. And that always stayed with me. And so as a result, I think the way I have engaged with the world and always engaged with it is what I call through my lens view. And so many of my friends, Kirsty, would say, well, why do you always bring up the Black thing when you're talking about your life? Yeah. And and I would say, well, I'm not bringing up the black thing. They're like, yes, you are. You say, well, black this, black that. And of course, my wife says, I'm blackity black, black. That's a whole nother story. But, and I tell them, I say, well, I am not bringing it up. I'm just sharing my journey. And it happens to be through the lens of a black person. And so when people said to me, well, I don't see color. Yeah, I don't know. And my that first thought was, all this chocolateness, how can you miss all this chocolateness? Right? Exactly. And I, I think, totally agree. You know, and I think what they meant was, you know, we're all the same. I think my dilemma, Jasmine, has been we're not all the same. And mm -hmm. part of it is the life experience that I have had and the life experience that you have had as a white person are very different. Mm -hmm. Here's what I have finally realized. If you're not in the room or you're not on the inside of my vertical while I'm having these life experiences, you believe they are not true. Mm -hmm. And I think what has bothered me is that when I tell my good white friends that, you know, my relationships with the police, they're like, I don't believe that. I'm like, how can and you I not? Used, and I used to get so upset when they'd say that because I would say, how can you say my experiences are not real or are not authentic? That is so disrespectful to me. I don't, uh -huh. when you say something happens to you, I don't automatically say, oh, I don't believe that. And the fact uh -huh. that you're not in the room, just because you're not in the room should not discount whether or not you believe that it happened to me. Exactly, because yeah, if someone so saying it happened to them, like you should believe them. It's the same conversation that I even have with my cousin, who is a black man, but he, I guess, is has been privileged his whole life, has been around like white people his entire life, and when I tell him like, 
all the things that like some black people go through or like my experience of feeling uncomfortable in different situations he's he's like black people like that's just not a thing because I never went through it but I'm like that's the key word maybe you have never gone through it but it doesn't mean it doesn't happen it doesn't mean it it doesn't exist for others well not only that but how, how old is he he's 25 okay so he's he's young you know what? I will say this. I won't say in his defense, Kirsty, but, but I will say this. So, you know, my grandfather was a tobacco farmer and he was the first entrepreneur that I ever met, but I didn't know it because he was a farmer and I could not wait to get away from Reedsville. But he had barns, he had tractors, he had a sixth grade education, couldn't really read or write. And as a result, he lost his first farm from this white man that took advantage of him, but that's another story. Yeah. But I realized that he, because he was a landowner and he was a successful black man, he didn't take no junk off of anybody. And I saw him engage with white people in a certain way. And then I had eight uncles and four aunts and my uncles were these real black men. They were solid black men. They weren't hood. They weren't, um, they even run around on their wives. I mean, they were solid black men. So I grew up with this mindset, nobody had any money, but we had lots of values and lots of integrity. And so I kind of came through the world with this solid black group of men. And then I go to a elementary school and junior high school, or I guess middle school then, where my third, it was a neighborhood school. My third grade teacher was Mrs. Dowdy and Mrs. Dowdy's husband was the chancellor of North Carolina A&T where my daddy worked. And then my mother taught over at Bennett. And so I was around this first generation of educated black people. And what's interesting, most of them came from farming communities. And so you didn't have egos, but I look back now at the, at our church, it was the garbage man and the chancellor and everybody kind of intertwined. And so you didn't have class issues. So my point being going back to your cousin, I got out, I went to work for IBM. I was the only black person there, but I got that job. And then I went back to business school and it was like, when I went back to Chapel Hill, there were seven black people in my class of 160. Then I get out to work for Discovery Channel. I'm the only black person, but it's a great job. So I'm going through life. And even though I'm the only black person in many of my environments, I've got this image that I'm a bad dude because I'm a black man. And when I was growing up being a black man, you were like a black man. And a black man had strength and power and integrity and you had overcome stuff and you could do anything. So I get to 36, I'm working at Home and Garden Television in New York City. The opportunity to run the New York office came up and I didn't get it. And I was devastated. And I ironically had had all these opportunities but I was the only one. But mm -hmm. so in my mind, I was just doing what I was supposed to be doing. And in my mind, I hadn't run into any roadblocks. Now, what I've realized is I'm sure I did. I just didn't know what they were. Mm -hmm. And I look back now, and even at IBM, the, 
the white boys were getting promoted, but I was so naive. I didn't realize what was going on. And so uh -huh. what I would say about your cousin is he probably hasn't run into that scenario yet. Yeah. And my goal is I hope he doesn't because I actually think if you can grow up and believe that the world is an equitable place, you know, I ain't mad at you, right? And, and in some ways, I feel like that life has jaded me because now and after that experience, it was almost like once your eyes are opened, it's tough to close them back, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I am grateful for having, I grew up around strong black men they looked after their wives. I didn't know. Here's what's interesting. I didn't know one person growing up, Kirsty, that didn't have a daddy. You hear me? Not one. And you know, you hear all these stories about black men and no daddies. Well, I grew up in a farming environment. And in a farming environment, it is a very, it's very much a patriarchal uh, environment. So my grandfather had 34 grandchildren, 56 great-grandchildren, and like 13 great-great-grandchildren. And crazy. we grew up all around him. And they, you know, Sundays was Sunday dinner, and you come in and nobody, you didn't touch one biscuit until he sat down and said that grace. Mm -hmm. Somebody, and he was the man. And you know, I have looked back and I thought, not only was he the man, but he took it seriously. I genuinely believe that he was a moral person. And I say, I genuinely believe because you realize you never really know what someone's doing, mm -hmm. but I, especially when they got 13 kids. <laughs> but I genuinely believe that he, I genuinely want to believe that he was moral. And he led that family with the iron hand. And I think as a result, you know, my daddy's 90 and he's still living. And I see my father, my, my aunt is 96. And then their older sister's 101. Y'all ready for this? I see my daddy at 90 get down on his knees every night, uh -huh. say his prayers. Wow. My 96-year-old aunt does the same thing. Wow. 101-year-old aunt now sits on the sofa and does it because she can't bend down but just the powerful image of seeing that mm -hmm. like i've seen it so much i never thought about it until recently and i'm like wow to have that kind of mindset instilled in you is amazing mm -hmm. so. so we wanted to actually uh we haven't even introduced you to the podcast yet. <laughs> so we're gonna just jump right into that quickly. Sorry about that. No problem. This has been a great no conversation. Problem. So you're listening to the MBSA podcast. No, you were just listening to Bernard Bell's story of his family, which is amazing. And we'll definitely hear more about that. But I'm Kirsty Moore. And this is... I'm Tadja Marshall. And we're the host for today's episode. Again, we're here with Bernard Bell, and he's our professor for the Econ 393, which is the capstone class for the entrepreneurship minor. Um, Econ, one, Econ 393 is one of the things 
one of the things we learned in Econ 393 is um, how to create an effective 30-second pitch. We would love to hear Bernard's 30-second elevator pitch. Well, since it was five minutes, let me see if I can reduce it back. First of all, thank y'all for the invitation. This is uh, this is wonderful, and I think it is the first time that I have um, I have been interviewed by my students. Oh, so uh, I'll try to do what I've taught y'all to do. Uh, so I'm Bernard Bell. I grew up in Reedsville, North Carolina. Moved to Greensboro. Uh, my parents were college professors, and so when I was six years old. I realized that I had a love of talking to people and my desire to be in journalism was born. Uh, when I got to high school, I was an athlete. I was in student government. I was the only uh, black male in National Honor Society. And I look back now and I think that's where my leadership and my team playing skills were honed. Um, when it was time to go to college, I applied to all these schools, all these Ivies, and got in and my parents said, that's great. They said, you can go to any school in the country you wanna to go to and we will pay for it as long as it's a state school in North Carolina. <laughs> and so all of a sudden this big desire to go be international and all this end up at Harvard and Yale and stuff, it came down to uh, basically the 16 schools in, in North Carolina. And so I had a twin sister, my sister, had decided she was going to Bennett because my mother met, went and my uh, I decided I was going to a &T. We had applied to Chapel Hill and got in and accepted. And then we tried to a and and Bennett and got in and accepted. I spent two days at a &T, And when I class ended and my daddy's standing outside waiting, he's so proud that I'm on campus and he's waiting to take me home. And all the students are like, who is that? I'm like, that's my daddy. And my sister had a similar experience. We decided we couldn't do it. And so that's how we ended up at Chapel Hill. Oh, okay, that and, makes more sense. And so while at Chapel Hill, I, I got really involved in the speech team and won the national championship my senior year. I uh, pledged my fraternity, my lovely Omega Psi Phi fraternity incorporated. And uh, when I graduated, I went to work for IBM, ended up in the television business for 25 years. And I have now been teaching at Chapel Hill for three and a half years. And so it's been, it's been amazing. It's a little longer than 30 seconds, but I had That's to get okay. there. You gave us that was great. That was great. I have some questions from that. Um, one thing I'm interested in knowing more about is how your undergraduate experience at UNC kind of helped set you up for success um, at IBM and in other ventures that you've had. That's a great question, Jasmine. I think what I realized early on was I did I needed to do a major that would make me marketable. And so while I came to school wanting to be a film director, and I remember the dinner, the Sunday dinner when I told my parents, and I guess emotionally they flipped the table over, but they sat there quietly and said, film director? They're like, I don't, I don't think so. And um, and so I switched my major from journalism to economics and I minored in math. And I did that specifically so I could get a good job. Um, but while I was there, I got involved in the speech team primarily because I wanted to be able to be an effective communicator. And what I learned early on in school was there were people that wrote well and there were people that spoke well and those opened doors for them to do stuff. But it seemed like back then it was the folks that had somewhat of a quantitative major that got the good jobs. 
And so when I went to school, I didn't know enough about what different jobs were. Jasmine, all I knew were doctor, lawyer, teacher. Mm-hmm. The thought of being in business, it never crossed my mind. So um, I, because I got involved in a, a group called, it was a Xerox, I'm sorry, it was the IBM, they hit like a student training thing and show you how mentorship works. Uh, there was a young lady, black lady by the name of Della Michelle from Durham. I met her during this IBM training and she liked me. And she said, Bernard, have you ever thought about working for IBM? I was like, the, the thought never crossed my mind. She hid uh, me interview. And I remember my first interview, I thought I was looking so good. I had my suit on and she pulled me aside. She's like, interview was great. You look like a gangster. I was like, what you talking about? I got on my pinstripe, right? She's like, the very wide. she said, they're very wide and it's very shiny. I was like, that's what we do. Oh, no. She took me to South Square Mall and there was a place, I think it was called uh, S&K or K&G or something like that. And she bought me a suit, white shirt and a tie. And I was like, that doesn't, I'm like, that ain't cool. What I realized was lack of exposure. Mm-hmm. There was my lack of exposure could have prevented me from getting a great job. And mm-hmm. Jess, she took me almost by the hand and stepped me through every piece because I had lots of education, but not a lot of exposure. And so what I realized I did at when I was in school, I made it a point to get educated, but I also made a point to get exposed. Mm-hmm. And I think you can have really, really smart people who are very uh, um, uh, degreed up, but they haven't been exposed, so they can't compete. Yes, I definitely think exposure is key to a lot of people's success, success, um, especially with regards to like mentors and different people that can, you know, kind of help lead you along the way. I know that that's been a key part of my success at Carolina as well. That is amazing that she was able to help you like that. Um, So just like looking at your bio, I... Um, saw that you were the senior vice president of TV One. So I would love to hear how you worked your way up to that position and what was the experience like? Well, first of all, I will tell you, Kirsty. I mean, uh, yeah, Kirsty, it was an amazing experience. Um, and this will show I'm a person of faith. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting. Y'all have heard me talk about the valley moments. Well, Everything was going great. I had this great job. I'm at Discovery Channel. So I did IBM, then Discovery Channel, um, then Home and Garden Television. And then I was doing so well at HGTV, an opportunity to go to Silicon Valley presented itself. And I took it because I wanted to be a gazillionaire. It was right during the first internet bubble. Moved out. Um, they're paying me all this money. I had all these stock options. You know, I was not a, at the time, I was not a nice gazillionaire. I was like, they're like, Bernard, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm a gazillionaire. I'll talk to you later. And um, so 13 months later, we're out of money. I told everybody in Greensboro, yo, I'm out of here. 13 months later, the company's out of money and I'm back in my parents' basement. I go to church and people are like, I am probably 40. Okay. I'm too old to be living in my parents' basement. I put it like that. Oh. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so, Kirsty, so I'm going to church. And 
people are like, so how's how's Silicon Valley? Because I told I told everybody. I'm like, well, now all of a sudden I'm like, it, 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 it's okay. Okay. Whereas before I was like, oh, it's awesome. I'm like, they're like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. They're like, well, so are you back and forth? I'm like, um, not, not, not really, right? They're like, where you at? I'm like, I'm in my parents' basement. Well, I was out of work for two years. Wow. And, but to show you how God works, my mother got sick, ended up having open heart surgery, mm-hmm. and I was able to be at home to look after her. And I have come away with that experience in my life saying many times these valley moments, they're not necessarily about us. They're designed to help other people. That is so true. Long story short, I end up going to a, a basketball game in New York. I meet this guy by the name of Les Goodstein. He asked me to come and work for him. It's a weird story. I won't go into detail. But he asked me to come and work for him. He was going through a divorce. And so I'm basically like a personal assistant. And then he's help, I'm helping him. He long story short, I'm helping him digitize the daily news newspaper. He found out I had an MBA. Along the way, I meet a guy who introduces me to another person, which introduces me to another person. And that person was the president of Discovery Channel. And he had been there when I was there, a black man by the name of Jonathan Rogers. He is the one that hired me at TV One to be senior vice president. I was the second employee there. I hired everybody. It was just great. I thought I was very humble. I look back now, I wasn't. But it was my first black company. And every other company I had been at, when the colleagues would say, well, let's go out and eat breakfast, grab breakfast. So you go out and you grab a bagel, some cream cheese with some locks and so forth and so on. I get the TB1, first day president says, let's go out and grab breakfast. We go and we go and we go to Waffle House. Love that. We had a full breakfast. Iconic. So, it was total. So then after that, we started hiring people. You would walk into TB1 and people would bring their breakfast. We had a kitchen. They wouldn't bring their breakfast. They would bring their eggs and bacon. You walk into the building, you smell eggs and bacon and pancakes. It's like nothing I'd ever experienced. I love that though. I I shared that, Kirsty, because the president of TV1, Jonathan Rogers, he hired all of us who had been in corporate America. And many of us had been the only black person in corporate America in our jobs. Mm -hmm. And we were very smart, but we were the products of being the only black person. And he was intentional about developing a culture where we felt comfortable. And so part of that culture was around food because Mm -hmm. he was of the opinion that black people have a relationship with food. And Jasmine, I look back now and those 12 years were the most phenomenal time in my life. I went from having one employee to we had 125 people in the company. I was senior vice president, sales and marketing. And then I was senior vice president, officer of the president. I had half of the company reporting into me. I went to the Oscars, the Grammys, the NWCP Image Awards the uh, Dove Awards. It was, I mean, the, you know, here's a picture of me and I don't know if you can see Will Smith, Will Smith right? Wow. So oh I, had, I, had, 
I have, I got Will Smith. I wish I had some of my pictures and he put them. But Will Smith, Regina King, Jamie Foxx, Blair Underwood, Denzel. They, I had them on speed dial. And uh, just the parties that I got invited to. This is I mean, what I, I remember want. going to. This is what I want. I, no, yeah. <laughs> I remember going to Eddie Murphy's house, and we did shoot. We had. I remember sitting out talking to Beyonce's dad because we oh. were doing a shoot with her. I mean, I got pictures with Usher, and you know Quincy Jones. And hold on one minute. I'll show you. Um, this is the type of industry that I would love to get into. I had no idea. I had um, no idea about this experience. And so, uh, so you know, I'm at Quincy's house. We take this picture. He sits and plays this. We have this. So it's him. It's Regina King. It's uh, Jamie Foxx. And you know, uh, the entertainment community when they're having parties, everybody gets around the piano. And people start singing and stuff, you know, and they start drinking and so forth. And it when I say, Jasmine, it was the opportunity of a lifetime. And because I was the man, I mean, I was the senior vice president, and especially when senior vice president, officer president. So I'd go on these shoots and sometimes I'd be the executive in charge. They call it executive in charge of production. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'd go on these shoots and what I finally realized is when Will Smith is in the room, doesn't matter who else is in the room, he's the man. So I mm -hmm. learned Jasmine to take my ego and keep it in my back pocket. So I'd be on these shoots, people would be walking around, you got all these egos and I would walk around. I'm like, look, you want a bottle of water? What can I get you something to eat? So well, and everybody, they'd be like, who's the black dude? Because a lot of the production teams were. And so then I wouldn't come in with, I'm the senior vice president. And then they find out that I was the senior vice president. And it was the experience, Jasmine, that you always hear me say less is more. If I had gone in, I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. It's a different takeaway than when you go in totally unassuming and then they find out, find out you're the man. And I remember being at a restaurant in, um, in Beverly Hills called Mr. Chow. And I walk in, it was uh, me and some others, we just wrapped up a production. And I walk in and I'm walking past Eddie Murphy. And so as I'm walking, he's like, Bernard Bell? And I was like, yes. He's like, hey man, he's like, you know, I've been trying to catch up with you. Kirsty, when I say, oh my God, I, you could not tell me anything. And every Everybody, everybody's in there. I mean, everybody's in there, right? This yeah. is LA. And so I'm walking in. So then after that, people coming up, they're like, now, who are you again? Who are I'm you like, again? <laughs> when I say it was an unbelievable job. And the last thing I'll say is, so we built a new building, moved into the building at TB1 in Silver Spring. My president put my office right in the middle. It's this long hallway, right in the middle of the hallway. He said, Bernard, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to uh, basically design your office. So I had a designer, an interior decorator come in. We picked out the fabric for the drapes. I had a sofa. We picked out the sofa, the throw pillows, the oh. thing. It was, it, was, it was an amazing experience. It was just the best. And my deal, Kirsty, was when I flew into a place, I, get, I got picked up either Lincoln Town Car or Limo. It wasn't just car service. My deal was Rich Carlton, 
Four Seasons, St. Regis. I fly out to LA and stay at the Century Plaza Hotel and I would have the presidential suite. And my meetings were in the presidential suite and people would come to me. Wow. And, and I would order lunch and they'd bring lunch up. And it was like, it was like a real executive job. If, and it was, it was the best. It was the best. I just want to know, like, if somebody wanted to, like, get into that industry, somebody like me, obviously, I'm talking about myself, um, how would that person, like, like so what Kirsten, is the so interesting. Well, first of all, I will help you because I have my contacts. Um, but I, what I think is interesting, most people never think about the television business. Yeah. And I say any job that you're interested in, sales, marketing, finance, accounting, operations, um, anything, it's the same jobs in the entertainment business, but your salary is going to be better and you will, um, it's so much fun because it's the entertainment business. Yeah. You know, and, and I think I look back now, I didn't know this, but I timed it right. So just as the business was taking off, like I got there when HBO folks were still going door to door trying to sign up people to get HBO. Oh, wow. And what I tell people to do now is find industries that are at the inception of it so you can ride the wave. And the reason I was compensated so well was that the industry was making a lot of money because it was growing exponentially. And so it wasn't as much about me as it's like the kids going to Oracle now. Well, Oracle is a technology company, lots of money being made. So they're just going to benefit from it. Right. And so I say, even, even though the industry is good, it's not growing like it used to be. So I would go to a place like um, Amazon Prime or Netflix or Twitch or Fubo or one of those companies because you're gonna get the same excitement, but the growth trajectory is a little more aggressive, a lot more aggressive. And so you're gonna make a lot of money. I see. What if I, it's not even about the money, you just want the experiences and the, and the network. Never I say that, never, ever, ever say that, Kirsty. is always about the money. It's about the, okay, that's true. Okay, so- well, I, had this, I had this conversation yesterday with a young man who okay. wants to be a social worker. Oh, he wants to be a what? A social worker. Okay. And I told him, that's great, but as a social worker, you may make $40,000 a year, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's not about the money, but it is about the money. That's true. I don't mean- Yeah, because you got to live. That's true. So in your opinion, you said that- Yeah, you have to find a balance. Um, You said that both of your parents were um, college professors and you're a college professor now. Um, so as we wrap this up, I just love to hear like, like, I guess that was your reasoning for being a college professor and like, how has that experience been and what do you have planned for the future? So what's interesting is I, I had sworn I would never teach mm-hmm. because I saw my parents and yeah. my dad got his PhD. You ready for this? He got his PhD from Penn State in 1964. Wow in agricultural science, he was a farmer growing up. And so, and then my mother went to Columbia and she got her master's. And what's interesting in the neighborhood that I grew up in, in Greensboro, Kirsty, you've got all these black people that all came right off the farms. 
Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that they came because both my well, my father especially came from very, very, very humble beginnings. And I think if you met my parents, no ego. If you met my neighbors that I grew up in, no ego. And yet you had doctors and lawyers and dentists and all these people. I thought that's how the world lived. I thought you had farmers and then doctors and lawyers and so forth. And um, I had sworn I would never teach. And I think the reason this role works, it's entrepreneurship. So I feel like I've got one foot in business and one foot in academia. And candidly, it is the students that have kept, I'm three and a half years in. So I always say I'm a second semester senior. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it is the students that keep me coming back. And I used to hear people say, well, I know, you know, it's all about the kids. It's all about the kids. I was like, that's kids. <laughs> But I can say y'all are bright, y'all are smart. I don't think that we leverage y'all's intellect as well as we should, mm-hmm. but y'all are out of the box thinkers. Right now, you don't have any parameters on your thinking, so you can just come up with these great ideas. And I'm looking and saying, you know what? I'm, I, I don't think I'll do this for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. But I think right now, while entrepreneurship is like, I'm riding the wave of entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is a hot thing right now. Yeah. And it has been so um, wonderful to meet young people and be inspired by y'all. And Kersey, especially the black students, because it's so, I find that many of the issues that y'all have now, I dealt with 30 years ago, same stuff at Chapel Hill. But I also see a new wave of entrepreneurial thinking that makes me get inspired about what I can look to in the future. Cause y'all some badasses. And like you and Jasmine Kirsty, y'all are badasses. I don't think you realize how, how much of badasses y'all are. And it allows me to get beyond some of the blight that we see in our community, you know, with the sagging pants and all that stuff. When I see y'all, I'm like, you know what? We need both. Yeah. The sagging pants drives the culture, right? <laughs> but y'all drive the intellect. And I think we need both to create a robust Black community. I really do. I agree. I agree. I agree as well. Well, thank you so much, Bernard. This has been a very helpful conversation. And I know, like, even after this podcast, I would love to continue it. Um, if you have anything else to add, or do you have anything else? To add? Um, I just want to say I am very grateful that y'all are doing this. I think Black voices are such important voices right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes I get accused of being, you heard me say, Blackity Black Black. But I believe that we all come to these environments and we bring our own lens view to the conversation. And I would encourage you all to continue to do that. Your voice, Jasmine and Kirsty, is very important. When I talk to my white friends and I say, well, black or white, they see black as a color. Mm-hmm. I see black as an experience. Mm-hmm. So when I see a young brother cross the, cross the quad and I see him and I do that brother nod and he does it back, or mm-hmm. especially y'all don't do it as much as kind of older black men. That nod is an acknowledgement of, I understand all the experiences that you've been through. And I'm right there with you, my man. Yeah. And I don't think everybody understands that. 
but it's important to me that the black students understand that while I'm a man of the world, I also understand y'all because I am y'all. And so that nod that I give, I may give it uh, tangibly or intangibly, but I got you. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's what I'd like to leave it with that I got you. Thank you. Well, thanks again for coming on to the MBSA podcast. Um, definitely give it a listen because I think you'll you'll enjoy this. So will you will you send me the link? I will, I will. I will. It'll be on Spotify, but I'll also send you the link. Thank you so much again for coming. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. In our next one, I'll be talking to my professor for Busy 401, Dr. Mayhen.